So how many people have gotten to go see the colors the last few weeks? Anybody up in the mountains seeing the colors? All right, just in case you haven't been here in a couple of weeks and you missed us introducing this, this sermon series, this new sermon series two weeks ago, we are in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the very first church. I mean, first days, first weeks, first month, first years of the Christian story right after Jesus had left and what happens with this message that Jesus gave all these people to take out into the world. And we've been pairing acts alongside our six church values and, and looking at passages and how they interact with who we are, and what we do right here, right now, a few thousand years later. And so if you weren't with us for a couple weeks ago, because you were seeing beautiful golden trees, that is what we are up to. So before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this good worship uh, of your glory that we have been able to just participate in as a church family, Lord. We pray that you would now uh, open our hearts, open our minds to your word, that we wouldn't uh, leave the same way as we came in. We pray that you change us. We pray that you change this church because of the power of your word, scripture, the authority over our lives. Please give me the words you got uh, me to say. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask you a question to get started, okay? What should you see? What should you see when you walk through the doors of a church? What should you see as you walk through the doors of a church? Churches look different, right? If you were to visit churches across the world, across time, they would look really, really different. Maybe some of you have gotten to visit a number of churches and you say, yeah, I get it. Churches look really different, don't they? But if you were to walk through the doors of any church, what should you feel? What should you sense? What should you hear? What should you see when you walk through the doors of any church? I've had the privilege of being able to walk through the door of a number of churches. A few years ago, I walked through the doors of a church in Haiti. Hundreds of Haitians lined wooden benches across concrete floors, singing in Creole with just an incredible passion for hours as I tried not to pass out in the 100 degree heat. I'm just not made for that. Years before that, I had visited a church here up in the mountains in Colorado and watched a few dozen people walk in in cowboy boots to sing hymns on an old guitar. Years before that, I got to visit a church in rural Europe. Less than 10 people dotted the old pews as we quietly read scripture and prayed, and then I found myself after the service eating these little shortbread cookies with little short grandmas in a stained glass foyer. Before that, I had gotten to visit a church in Central America where, where the, the memory of Catholicism was still so present, and, and people crossed themselves throughout the service as I tried to pretend that I know more than three words in Spanish. Not true. Before that, I had gotten to walk through the doors of a church here in the U.S., in the Midwest, in the suburbs, and walked into a room covered in, in, in lights and, and smoke and, and cameras and screens and 2,000 people. Churches look different, don't they? Churches look really different. But what should you see? What should you feel? What should you sense when you walk through the doors of any church? What should, you, what should you see when you walk through the doors of our church? 
Our passage today helps us answer just that very question. It's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Joe read it just a few minutes ago. And, and here's what it's answering. Had you walked through the doors of the very first Christian church in the very first century, what would you have heard? What would you have seen? That's what our passage is answering today. A couple weeks ago, we saw what happened earlier in Acts chapter 2. The church had been 120 people. It was scared, waiting for Jesus when it received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Peter preaches this message and 3,000 people come to the church in one day. 120 to 3,000. So the natural question becomes, what on earth do you do with 3,000 people? What on earth do you do with 3,000 people? How do you grow together? How do you study together? How do you, how do, you do this Christian life thing? How do you do church Together, in a word, had you walked in the church 2,000 years ago, that very first church, what would you have seen? What would you have heard? What would you have sensed when you walked through their doors? That's the question we're answering today as we come to Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Acts chapter 2. It's after the Gospels, those stories of Jesus' life. We believe that this is the authority over our lives, the authority over our church. This is the very words of God. So we come to it uh, this morning asking this question. We're going to start Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Luke, who's writing Acts, is going to start with a list. So, so, so pay attention to this list that he gives us. They, meaning the first Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So Jesus' disciple Luke, who's writing this for us, he starts right off the bat with a list of four things that you would have seen had you walked in the doors of the very first church. The first is, look through this list in verse 42. The first is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Biblical teaching Sermons, just like we read a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, earlier in this chapter, were an absolute essential part of the early church. The great part is if you take the time to read through this book of Acts, you'll find that you get to actually read a number of these sermons. And they carry very similar themes, no matter who they're given to or where they're at. Often they talk about three things. Uh, Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior and Messiah the necessity for repentance and salvation found in Christ. Second, look at this verse. Second, the first group of Christians devoted themselves to fellowship. They knew each other. They lived life together. They had real, authentic relationships with one another. Third, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Think about your friends that you live life with. You eat together, right? eat together. And so these first Christians, you know what? They ate together in homes, and as they ate together, they shared in the Lord's Supper, remembering his death. And then fourth, they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was the fuel that the first church ran on, and as you go through Acts, we get to read some of these prayers. The first church, they prayed for, for their mission and taking this message out. They prayed for their unity. They prayed both regularly regularly, both individually and together as a full church. They prayed constantly. So right off the bat, Luke gives us four things that had you walked into that first church, had you walked in their doors, that you would have seen. But he's just getting started. 
Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Everyone. So not just Jesus' followers. Everyone in the city of Jerusalem was filled with awe. The whole city was in awe of what these unified Christians were accomplishing together and these miracles that their leaders were performing. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. So here Luke refers to Christians as the believers. As you go through Acts, you're going to see him refer to us, those who believe in Jesus, with several different titles, including followers of the way, the disciples, the brothers, the holy people, the church of God. But then Luke goes on to say that they were together and had everything in common. Now, if you're reading this in the original language, in common shares the same root word as fellowship from just a few verses before. And so what Luke is actually doing is he's using near synonyms to repeat himself three times already, and he's going to do it more throughout this passage about the same value of this early church. He says that, that they were in fellowship, they were together and in common. He repeats over and over again this focus on just their unity. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So this sharing was a continual process where, where Christians would give up a portion of their possessions for the mission of the church. And this wasn't the abolishment of private property. It was a sharing of the property that you owned. And it went to those in need. And there would have been two types of people in need in the church. There would have been those who were from Jerusalem and poor. And there would have been those who had been visiting Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, heard the gospel, and now they're staying in Jerusalem for a time and need help to do so as they learn and grow in their faith. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So the first church, it met in two distinct different ways. It met in one large group. It says that they met in the temple courts. This would have been one of the only places in Jerusalem where 3,000 people could come together. So they'd come together in one large group to worship and hear teaching. And then they also came together in smaller groups. It says in their homes, where they, where they ate together, they shared meals, they had real, authentic, deep friendships, relationships. So they came together in two ways, large groups and small groups. It's the same thing that we try to replicate as we come together in large groups like this one right now on Sundays and then as smaller groups throughout the week in, in our small group ministry. But whether it's large or small, the key word here is together, together. They were unified. They didn't give up on being together. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. So because of their unity, all of Jerusalem, this whole big city was on notice. They noticed that something special was going on and they favored these Christians. And because of this, because of this unity, in the verse, verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because of the church's unity, people came to know Jesus every single day. That's incredible, right? That's incredible. 
People came to know Jesus every single day. They were realizing the hope that Jesus had prayed over his followers, over the people who would come after them. Back in John 17, 23, just before his death, he prayed to the Father, I and them and you and me, so that they, so that my followers may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The cause of unity is Christ. The effect of unity is growth. The cause of unity is Christ. The effect of unity is growth. Because the church, that very first church, was unified, people were coming to know Jesus every single day. What would you have seen had you walked in the doors of that very first church? You would have seen unity. Throughout the passage, Luke just keeps repeating himself over and over again about this value of unity. I had this little Walkman back in the day when I was a kid, you know, spun the CDs on it. High, high school, you don't, you don't know what this is. Spun these little, and I'm sitting on the bus and that thing would just shake and repeat itself over and over and over again, the song. That's what Luke is doing. He's repeating himself over and over and over again so that you can't miss this value of unity. Verse 42 tells us the church devoted themselves to fellowship. Verse 44 tells us all the believers were together, had everything in common. Verse 46 tells us every day they continued to meet together. Then we read they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Luke wants you to read this and go, okay, you don't need to keep repeating yourself. I get it. First church really valued their unity. Churches look different. Churches look different. But what should you see no matter what church you walk into? You should see unity. Unity. And it's one of the values we have here at our church at South Suburban. We've only got six of them, and this one is an important one. Unity. As a unified body, we will put aside our own interests, resolve conflicts peacefully, and together champion the objectives of the church. This is our value of unity. That as a unified body, we will put aside our own interests, resolve conflicts peacefully, and together champion the objectives of the church. Now, if you read this, and I've read it several times, You'll notice that there is one vision, that just as this first church in Acts 2, we would come together, we would be unified. But then it gives us actually three action steps, three ways that we can pursue unity together as that church body. Three ways. Put aside our own interests, resolve conflicts peacefully, and together champion the objectives of the church. So I just want to take a minute on each one of these this morning and talk about these three ways that we're going to be pursuing unity together. The first way we're going to find unity is to put aside our own interests. This is uh, what the first church did in Acts 2 is they sacrificially shared their possessions. They put aside their own interests. Scripture puts it this way in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. As a unified body, we will put aside our own interests. Because the truth is, turning inward leads to sickness. Turning outward leads to health. 
Some years ago, I ran just out of chance. I ran by an old friend on an elevator. We were the only two who got in. I "I know you. We got to talking, and my friend was just in this dark place in life. No particular event had happened, but man, he was just filled with despair. And so by the time we were hitting the top floor of the elevator, I was praying for him as the elevator doors were opening and closing, trying to convince us to get off. And as we did, I turned back and I asked him a question. I said, hey, what are you, what are you doing about this? What, what, how are you handling this? It sounds like a bad place to be in. And the answer was that he was skipping classes to to be alone and think. He was going on long walks just by himself. He had moved out of an apartment with a roommate so he could be alone. The answer was that he was getting stuck in his head. He was turning inward. And the more and more that he turned inward, the more he got in his own head, the more it consumed him. We all know that when we turn inward, when we're concerned and consumed just by me, 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 my interests, we're not healthy, are we? But when we turn outward, when we look to the, to the interests of others, we find health and joy because it's how God made us. And the same is true for a church. Author and pastor Tom Rayner has spent years studying dying and declining churches in the United States, asking a question of why does this happen? And he says this, he found that the most common factor in declining churches is an inward focus an inward focus. When our expectations for church leadership revolve around taking care of me, when our concern about worship services revolve around my preferences, when, when I'm more concerned about a change in church than the thousands of people who don't know Jesus just within the few miles of this church, we've turned inwards to our own interests and unity becomes impossible. But a person's healthiest when their life isn't about them. And our church is healthiest when it's not about us, when we put aside our own interests. So here's three really practical first steps that we can each take to to help in in turning outward, to help in putting aside our own interests. The first is to to volunteer in some of our outward-focused events. The next one we've got coming up just in a month is the Family Fall Fest. I know it's a fun name, Family Fall Fest. And by, by volunteering at that, as we invite the whole community to come and participate in something here in our church building, on our property, and love on them, then we can help turn this church outward. The second way is that you can get involved in an outward-focused ministry here at the church that happens every single week, like the coffee cafe or greeters. And the third thing we should all be doing is praying, Right? We should all pray that God would help us put aside our interests, that God would help us and our church turn outward. So we value unity. And the first way we're going to pursue unity together is putting aside our own interests. Second way we're going to pursue unity together is resolving conflicts peacefully. Here's how important Jesus said resolving conflicts is to worshiping together as a church. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, therefore, this is Jesus speaking, if you're offering your gift at the altar in that day, if you're at worship, right, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. 
As a unified body, we will resolve conflicts peacefully. We've all got broken edges, right? Do you have some broken edges? I've got some broken edges. And when we're in church together, when we live this life, this community of church, those edges are going to catch on one another. And so we're going to need to expect to find unity through resolving conflicts peacefully. We're going to need to expect to have to enter rhythms of repentance and forgiveness to find peace as a church. Repentance is turning the other way. Repentance in a church body is knowing, not always right. I'm going to do things that I'm going to have to go to others and say, you know what? I admit it. I was wrong. And forgiveness is knowing others aren't perfect, knowing that at points as I live amidst this church body, I'm going to have to give grace to people who I don't think deserve it. I'm going to have to give people the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to have to forgive. Listen to how seriously Jesus took our ability to forgive others. Matthew 6, 15, he said, but if you do not forgive others their sin, your father will not forgive your sin. That's serious, right? Forgiveness is not just between me and another person. We tell ourselves this lie that forgiveness ends up being just between me and the person who hurt me, and it's not. It's just as much between me and God. If you can't forgive others, then you don't understand the forgiveness that God extends to us. When we do church together, we expect to need to resolve conflicts peacefully. Who's ever had a conflict in your family? Those of you who aren't raising your hand, you're lying. You're lying, and I know it. You can't fool me. We've all had conflicts in our families, right? Now, who's ever had an unresolved conflict in their family? One of those that lingered for a while, right? What does that do to your family? Some years back, I knew a family with a son in his 40s, a son and Father got into a fight about something the son found out the father had done years before. Both the father and son, they knew what was going on. They knew there was this conflict, but neither would take the step towards the other to resolve it. Father wouldn't repent, son wouldn't forgive. So although they they lived only about 40 minutes apart, they didn't see each other for over a decade. And of course... The two-person conflict affected the whole family. It always does. Suddenly people take sides. Family reunions get postponed. You worry about calling this person or that person because the other one might think this or that. We all know that unresolved conflicts tears families apart. It's the same thing in a church family. Unresolved conflict tears us apart. So we have to resolve conflicts peacefully. We need to expect not be caught off guard by a rhythm of repentance and forgiveness because the church, listen to me, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So we value unity. And the second way we're going to pursue unity together is by resolving conflicts peacefully. Third way we're going to pursue unity together is by championing the objectives of the church. As we look at Acts 2, man, there was a huge sacrifice there. They're sharing their possessions. And, and, and because of seeing that, you could see, you know what? They've got, 
they've got some shared goals in mind. They've got some shared aims in mind. They've got some shared objectives. And because they shared those same objectives, Acts 2.42 tells us, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. They knew their goal. That first church, they knew what they were up to. They knew their objectives, and they all worked together in unity. And so they were effective in seeing others come to Christ. And we want to do the very same thing, right? As a unified body, we will champion the objectives of the church. Earlier this year, our board put in, in place four objectives that, that our church is heading towards. I want to summarize them for you. And don't worry, I'm going to repeat them twice if you want to uh, write these down. Just summarize them. We can summarize them by saying we're aiming to reach young families, invite people into service, evaluate our church for simplicity, and provide prayer opportunities. Those, again, were reach young families, invite people into service, evaluate our church for simplicity, and provide prayer opportunities. Those are our four objectives. And, and here's why it's important for each of us to champion the objectives of our church. Because if we're going different directions... We're pulling against each other. I always do the uh, games at Vacation Bible School. And I love it. I love getting to just play games all day uh, during the summer. They, they tell me because I'm good at it, uh, but I can't shake the feeling that it might have something to do with no one else wanting to be in the July heat all day. I'm not sure. It's one of those two. But anyway, one morning this summer, we're out on the grass and we're playing tug of war. And so two teams come, and, and we've been going at it all day, and they're the two best teams, and so we put them on opposite sides. The kids are all excited. They're gripping on. I say go. The rope went tight. They pulled with all of their little kitty might, but nothing happened. And so we cheered, and we yelled, and they pulled, and they pulled, and nothing happened. They were just stuck. They were just stuck against each other. I mean, that thing was barely going Either direction. Usually you've got one team that pulls the other one over on the ground or the other team pulls them. No, this day is just, it seemed like five minutes. That rope just would not budge. They just pulled against each other. And that's what happens to a church when we don't champion the same objectives. There's 500 of us here on any given Sunday. 500. And when 500 of us decide where we think the church should be headed, we end up going and pulling in 500 different directions, and we just get stuck. We don't go anywhere. Nothing happens because we're pulling against each other. But think about what would happen if 500 people could get on the same side of the rope. Think about what would happen if 500 of us, think about what would happen if 500 of us pulled on the same side of the rope. The great things that we could accomplish for God's kingdom. Unity is found in shared purpose. Unity is found in a common goal, a known unifying objective, getting on the same side of the rope. So we value unity. And the third way we're going to pursue unity together is by championing the objectives of the church. And when we put these three things together, we get our value of unity. That as a unified body, we will put aside our own interests, resolve conflicts peacefully, and together champion the objectives of the church. We value unity. What should someone see when they walk in the doors of any church? If someone 
from our neighborhood came over to this church this morning and they walked in our doors for the very first time, what would they see? What would they sense? What would they feel? What would they hear? My hope is unity. My hope is unity. Because if we can find unity, we can accomplish the impossible for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time that we come together. We come together here unified, singing your praises as a unified body, taking communion as a unified church. We pray that you would press in to this church on its unity. We pray that you would change each of our hearts to, to seek unity, to put aside interests, to resolve our conflicts, to champion the same objectives. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would give us unity, knowing that it is only possible through the power and peace of your Holy Spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we come to this time of communion, I want to read you a verse from 1 Corinthians 10 about communion and unity. It's verse, uh, verses 16 and 17 from 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And this is the verse right here. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. Have you ever thought about the fact that we don't take communion alone in our kitchen? We come here together to participate in the loaf and the cup. We come here unified. Coming forward together is an act of unity. And so as we take this bread and cup, remember that it's not just us, not just each individual. We're here unified as a church to take communion together, to remember Christ's sacrifice together. And so we remember that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and remember it's me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. All those who are followers of Jesus are welcome at the table of South Suburban. We're unified not just as a church, but as the universal church, all Christians together. And so, whether you're a part of South Suburban or not, we invite you to this table if you believe in Jesus. As you come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. And then our folks, as you head down the side aisles, you can give of your offerings and tithes just as a part of your good worship at the baskets provided there. And as we come, we proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Will you come?